This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about the writers, composers, musicians, filmmakers and fellow artists that have influenced them and continue to preoccupy them today and the cultural experiences that have defined their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Tacita Dean, whose 16 and 35mm films, drawings on blackboard, photogravures, collages, sound pieces and found object works form one of the most poetic bodies of work in contemporary art. Tacita was born in 1965 in Canterbury in the UK, but for most of her life as an artist has lived outside of Britain, first in Berlin, which has provided the location for some of her most compelling works, and now between the German capital and Los Angeles. In 2018, Tacita had a three-venue group of shows in London, which reflected her deep engagement with the traditional genres of art. A series of portraits in film were shown at the National Portrait Gallery, a Royal Academy exhibition looked at her landscapes, and at the National Gallery she chose still lifes from the collection and by her peers, shown alongside some of her own still life works. Those shows reflected the richness and depth of her art. She's made filmic portraits of the poet and translator Michael Hamburger, of the painter Cy Twombly in the film Edwin Parker, which is titled after the artist's two given names, and David Hockney. Her work His Picture in Little, meanwhile, featured miniature film portraits of three actors who played Hamlet. She made a filmic diptych of a former guest on this podcast, Julie Meritu, a close friend, and she's returned to Meritu in the recent film 150 Years of Painting, this time capturing her in a moving conversation with another artist, Lucita Hurtado, who died soon after the work was made, just before she reached her 100th birthday. Two of Tacita's works feature the legendary choreographer Merce Cunningham. Merce Cunningham performs Stillness, six performances, six films from 2008, where he performed to his partner John Cage's silent musical work, 4 minutes 33 seconds, and Craneway Event, where we witness Cunningham working with his dancers in a dramatic former car assembly plant overlooking the San Francisco Bay. And Tacitus returned to working with a choreographer in 2021 for the Dante Project, where she's provided the costumes and set designs for new choreography by Wayne McGregor to music by Thomas Addis for a production at the Royal Opera House in London. The designs for the Dante Project relate closely to Tacitus' long series of works featuring landscapes and cityscapes. Her 2001 film, The Green Ray, captures the slowest setting ray of the sun, which is momentarily visible on the horizon in particular conditions. Disappearance at Sea, one of a number of works exploring the complex story of Donald Crowhurst, an amateur sailor who met a tragic end after faking his coordinates in a round-the-world yacht race, features beautiful sequences of rotating lighthouse bulbs and views out to sea. For fiancé tour, Tacita filmed the slow-rotating restaurant at the top of the TV tower in Berlin over the course of a day. In Palace, she filmed the derelict Palace der Republik, the former seat of the Communist German Democratic Republic Parliament, before its demolition, capturing its reflections of the buildings around it at sunset. A complex engagement with time is a key factor in Tacita's work, as we'll hear. In Palace, for instance, we witness the light at the end of the day, but we also reflect on the end of a totalitarian regime, the imminent death of the building, and are conscious of the marking of time with the frames of film as a projector whirs away in the gallery. 
Dean's medium has grown increasingly important to her as its very survival has been threatened, prompting the stunning work Kodak from 2005 and her largest work simply called Film for Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. For that, she pioneered a new technique called aperture gate masking, allowing her to manipulate the film in new ways, adding to the artisanal feel of the medium that she'd long described. Her epic film Antigone is perhaps the most dramatic use of this technique so far. Her films regularly have a distinctive painterly quality, evoke the process of collage and relate directly to drawing. Indeed, drawing and film have always been hand in hand in her work. Some of her earliest work featured an animation of her drawings using film, and it's this connection between drawing and filmmaking, with which I began our conversation. When I was at Falmouth School of Art, I did a, a drawing of this character called Eternal Womanly, and, um, you know, I wanted to try and make her move in a way, and I was encouraged to do so by the artist Animal Nicholson, who was the, the lecturer there at the time. And I changed it through, you know, taking a frame changing the drawing, taking another frame, a few frames at a time. And that made my first animation. It was called Eternal Womanly. And then all my early films were sort of linear, you know, came from drawing, actually. And, of course, that does continue because, you know, film is, is linear. And then, of course, now you're using this technique, aperture gate masking, which is a way of intervening in the film, which to me seems analogous to all sorts of, of methods from drawing to sculpture to collage. Tell me about, about that. Well, that came about from the necessity of having to, well, for the turbine hall, wanting to make a work that was, you know, supremely analogue and how to divide the frame or how to make a portrait format film or turn it into a strip of film, actually. So it began with the need to embed in the making of the image sprocket holes. And, you know, going back to the, you know, the older technique of masking in the, in the camera, um, which was always being, you know, historically quite crude. And then and sort of taking that challenge and, and trying to resolve it. And, and we resolved it through literally drawing, in fact, because we, we you know, drew 3D printing, redrew the frame. And and then had them all printed as plastic aperture gates with, you know, sprocket holes or whatever shapes in it. So they are, because it's a, you know, an aperture small, you know, they are plastic. You can see the line. So it is like drawing again embedded in the film. So it is, yeah, it continues. And what does aperture gate masking allow you to do? What has it allowed you to do since? You had that very specific need for it with film, but you've used it ever since, haven't you? And kept on inventing ways to, to use yeah, it. Yeah, with Antigone, it reached its, you know, we I decided, well, that and his picture in Little and the films that came were connected to that. It enabled me, for example, in his picture in Little, which was specifically made for the National Portrait Gallery as a miniature, to film in one frame which is of course pun on a frame you know a miniature frame as well as a film frame three actors who are in different places at different times who were you know at that point I'm not sure I had even met so you know for example I had on all of them had played Hamlet on the London stage and it was David Warner Stephen Delane and Ben Wishwell so I mean I'd film them and it's a very beautiful thing because it makes the camera which means room dark room um, everything takes place inside this dark room, in a way, including things that I can't control. And, you know, when you turn the lights on, when you expose, the, when you process the film, then you see what you've done. But it's it's the same as trying to choreograph something in a dark room. And so all these things happen despite themselves. 
so which is a very very important thing for me is to welcome and allow chance and the non-deliberate act as I call it to have an impact on the image one of the things I'm really conscious of with your work in film is that it seems to me that it consistently gives you epiphanies yes. sometimes those relate to chance as you say but for instance there was this very early epiphany which was the green ray mm-hmm. where you're filming this famous natural event an optical event mm-hmm. and the people that were fil- filming it on digital didn't capture it but film did so tell me about that and, and what I guess what did it tell you about film then that has kept you using film ever since well, it, it's not that I needed to be told that about film. For me, it was a confirmation. <laughs> I think it was telling them about film. But, uh, yeah, I was on a beach in Madagascar, and I was with my 16-millimeter camera. And they were, it was, I think it was even pre-digital then. It was a sort of, anyway, video camera that they had. And we were standing there. I was filming the sun setting into the sea, and I, they were filming it with, with the immediate medium of, of video. I, of course, had film. Right? <laughs> so the sunset... I optically saw the green ray. I stood standing on the beach. I saw it. I said, there was a green ray. And they said, no, there wasn't. And then we had to watch their video evidence to prove that there wasn't. And when I took my you know, precious little film back to London and have it processed, it was there. It was there across a few film frames. You couldn't really see it because what you understand about film is film is, is a static image you know, that's moved through, the, through sprockets, creates movement. So it's actually a series of static images. And across about three or four static images in, in that moment was this a green ray, which, you know, which is not was the video evidence proved that it wasn't there, but it was there. And I saw it, you know, so of course it was all bound up with my, I don't quite know the word for it, but the sort of chance, luck, faith, all these sort of words mixed into one aspect of what I hope for in what I do. So, And then of course that, preoccupation with film and its particular properties its extraordinary properties has propelled all sorts of work in your career so for instance the extraordinary film Kodak and then as you mentioned film at Tate Modern tell me about the works about film in a way I mean to a certain extent are they all about film you know but also you know well they become more consciously about I mean not so much consciously but the more film has become endangered the more I used film to show what a wonderful medium it is, you know. So I, I suppose it was a, a semi-unconscious, semi-conscious thing. So film clearly was a, I had to make this film a beautiful film that was entirely made by film. Film is a, a medium of enormous disciplines and it forces you into things by its parameters. So that made me make film, that made me discover the aperture gate masking system. You know, and of course Kodak came about earlier at the beginning where there was a slight sniff of danger that they might close the Kodak factory down in, in France. So they were stopping making this particular film stock. So, and, you know, and I bought some, it was self-reflexive, and you know, I wanted to film the place that made it. And it was quite beautiful in the way because the workers in that place had not actually seen it ever go into a camera. So it was like the beginning and the end. And my crew were very fascinated by the origin of this thing that they use every day. Also, there was this incredible metaphor in a way at the time because unbeknown to anybody there they were about to close this factory down and they were thinking about whether they could reuse it as a paper factory with all the rolls and the, you know so they were doing a test and they sent brown paper at the time I was really sad that they were interrupting it in this way but it did become this most stunning 
metaphor within the film is that you have this incredibly beautiful, you know, as, as the polyester or whatever goes through acetate, I think, or one or the other, goes through on the roll, you know, glittering and effervescent. And then they send the brown paper through and the lights go out. And it's really like, okay, we're going into a utilitarian world and we are a bit actually, you know, because film is definitely a, a medium associated with poetics and because it's about light, it's about chemistry, it's about the sun, you know, it's, it's very, I don't know, very clear things. It's just a chemical reaction on crystals, you know, you talk about salt, silver, crystals, very beautiful. And now we've entered a binary world and... um you know, it's it's of course very very practical and useful, but it does it lacks something for me, which is the, the, the sort of innate poetry of film. And then, of course, there's the aspect of time, which yeah. is a sort of in, in a way, it's sort of the thread that runs through pretty much everything you do. You're, mm. you're fascinated by different notions of time and in, mm. in literary notions of time and um, and literal notions of time and the time that you have in the camera with the film. So it's always seemed to me that film and your subject matter are always so bound up. It was the perfect medium for you. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, I came to film, as as I told you, at art school when it was the default medium for anybody wanting money to make moving images. I mean, there, this was in the mid-'80s in Cornwall. There was, you know, an, an early thing called pneumatic video. And, and and I was always in painting departments, and then I, you know, and even at the Slade, I was in the painting department, but I found the media department, and still most people were working on film. So I found my medium like... A painter finds their medium, but somehow my medium got taken away from me. <laughs> so because I do believe you are right, I do believe that everything I do is so connected to the medium that makes it that I was an existential crisis when I, I lost it. And, and people just think it's about shuffling images. It's just moving image. You can go to the next thing. And I knew that it was something deeper than that. So I had to fight like hell to keep it. And what's the status now with film? When I, because I went to Los Angeles, I met up with Christopher Nolan and we started to do these reframing the future film um, events. And he, very much from cinema, me, you know, I'm from art. You know, the the whole problem with film is that it it's still a technology in the sense that, you know, we need the, you know, the infrastructure and, and the industry. You know, what I realised, what I have learned over the last few years, that it's, the future of film to some extent is a semantic issue because it was very, very aggressively, you know, labelled as obsolete, old fashioned. I mean, it was very deliberate and and also as a as a technology that was and technologies go out of date. And I remember thinking I had this sort of epiphany moment actually talking to an editor at the New York Times who was rejecting an article I'd written. And she said it's just a matter of determinism you know technological determinism and I remember that point thinking no it's not it's a medium for me it's not a, a technology and if you take away that word technology and call it a medium then you put it in a completely different trajectory you know mediums outlast their times you know people are still painting paintings people are still carving in marble you know it's normal and it's permitted why can't I still work with film? So empowering the language, calling film a medium was a really, really important moment. And even, you know, Kodak adopted it. And the most important thing of all is that it meant that 
people who were still working with film were, were not Luddites anymore. They weren't outside of the progression of technology. They were actually working with a medium. And what I, you know, the biggest thing was that the industry did begin to understand that there were two mediums available to them, not just the pictures, not just moving images. There's, I mean, the level of aggression and ignorance is enormous. And it's so, of course, propelled by profit and money. And um, we were doing well, but then the pandemic has happened and the whole of cinema is now in threat, even digital cinema. And it's, you know, that it's all streaming services. And, you know, anybody who's a parent knows that, you know, that we need the institution of cinema to keep our kids watching something from start to finish because the pandemic, you know, we might try and watch a movie on a computer and, you know, my 16-year-old would kind of go off after about 10 minutes but we've made him in when we lived in LA we you know he sat through war and peace you know he and has never forgotten it you know that's the point you know you need that institution you need the building you need the darkness you need the kind of contract you make when you go to a film to sit and watch it so um and we've seen a huge amount of films with him but now we can't get his attention for 10 minutes and I think streaming is flawed useful in airports or whatever, but we mustn't lose cinema. We must not lose cinema. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? From an art school perspective, I have to say it was Cy Twombly. You know, when I was at Falmouth and I discovered him in old art magazines in our school library and then, you know, and then went to see the show at the Whitechapel. Um, as a schoolgirl, it was, you know, Masaccio and Giotto, particularly the death of St. Francis. You know, so it depends which moment you, you choose, really. So I, I can't be kind of singular in my answer. Well, that's fair enough. But what's so interesting hearing you say that, of course, is that both the artists that you mentioned, well, not Masaccio, but Giotto and Cy Twombly have been integral, have reappeared. <laughs> yes, exactly. They've been part of your work. So, so let's talk about let's talk about Giotto first of all, because that's a, a wonderful piece that you did, twenty fourteen, I think. Yeah, um, Fresco, Yeah, Fresco, Yeah, tell me about that one. Well, um, I'm Catholic by, you know, by upbringing, but I was sent to a Methodist school and then as Catholics we were allowed, there were only three of us or something, were, and my brother, uh, we, we were allowed to go over to the Franciscan Study Centre, this is when I was 12 onwards, and, you know, have mass with the Franciscans, the young, you know, which was a student affiliated with the University of Kent. So they were all kind of 17, 18-year-olds and they, you know, all in habits. And I was in total awe and wonder about that. I just thought it was the most exciting thing on this planet rather than being at the Methodist chapel in the school. Um, so I got very, very attached to their lives and, and St. Francis. And, and so when I was 17 and I went to Florence and then I went to Assisi, I totally fell in love with the Upper Basilica, the, you know, and the, the Giotto frescoes of the life of St. Francis. So I think in 2013 or 2014, they were doing a summer anniversary of him going to um, Santiago de Compostela. That was it was his, yes, his pilgrimage. So I, I don't know, because I had this sort of tenuous connection because it was to do with St. Francis. There were people, Franciscans on the board or something. And there was somebody who actually had a connection to Pope Francis to get permission to film the Basilica at close quarter in a way 
so I wanted to be the eye of Giotto, not the eye of the person standing on the floor, because the the detail in those frescoes is just, I mean, stunning and so modern and contemporary sometimes. You know that how to do a rope, you know how to do a fingernail, you know a sandal. So it, well, for me, it was one of the greatest privileges of my life to be face to face, you know, eye to eye with those frescoes. It was almost like you were, you know, see with Giotto's eyes, right? Yes, I mean, and also it's called Bonfresco because that was the method in which they made it, you know, and it brought in sort of things like pentimenti, you know, things, mistakes, and you could see the outlines because you draw immediately into the surface and, it, you know, you can't, there's no room for changes of mind, you know, so you see the little mistake, you see the things, the outlines where it should have been or what was wrong, but they're all just embedded in there. Again, embedded, it's a bit like film in the sense that, Everything gets, you know, layered upon layer. Embedded is the is the word, and film has the same level of of um, you know layers of emotion. So it's also a medium that's very you know embedded in a way. So yes, no, that was a real privilege. And then Cy Twombly. I mean, on the one hand, you've written about him for his retrospective at the Tate Modern, mm. uh, must be ten years ago now, um, and and of course the work that you made about him. And what's really interesting about that work is it takes a different approach to him than you might have thought. So you know, because he'd been a hero of yours, like as you suggest, from from yeah. very early on. So it's it, terrifying it, to meet your heroes. Yeah. So I mean, in two thousand, I mean, actually, what year was it? it was really a long time ago, nineteen ninety nine, I think. I gave a lecture a dear they did these artist on artist things and you had to be an artist in the collection and I think they thought I would do Smithson and I said well I actually want to talk about Cy Twombly and they were and they because he was of the Manil and there was a connection they allowed me to do it and I remember in my head thinking I just really spoke absolute gibberish I couldn't you know I, for me it was one of the most stressful things I've ever done and I didn't think it had been recorded, but then this tape, you know, appeared like, you know, at the time of when he returned 80 and everyone wanted to do retrospectives. And he was, everyone was listening to this thinking, well, maybe she can write. I mean, I was mortified and eventually they sent it to me and I, to my ear, I was talking gibberish, but, but the writing about him for Tate gave me the possibility to clarify my ideas because actually I work things out when I write. And then just at the same time, uh, in Vienna, Mumuk asked. They invited me to also write about him, and I said, "I can't. I can't do it twice." But can I do a photo essay of his house in Gaeta? And Nicola Del Rosso, who was living down there and was Sai's companion, he allowed me to into Sai's. Sai was in Lexington at the time, and I took all these photos of again a bit like not unlike Bonfresco in a way, just. Because I couldn't, I'm an incompetent technician, so I used to just put my camera on things to keep it steady. So it meant I got strange angles and stuff like that. And with Sai, we chose, he chose together which ones and we printed in the photo essay. It was a commission by Achim Hochdorfer, who was the curator there, you know, to try and do something with Leo Steinberg at the time. And then Leo said, actually, he would only give me an hour. I said, I can't do anything in an hour. <laughs> so I remember saying, saying, you know, the, you know, my heart's desire is, do you think I can go and film, you know, with Sai? And it was my, literally my heart's desire. And he agreed. And I don't think he's ever agreed to be in any other form. He was, you know, his studio in Lexington was, was just a, in a shop next to a cake shop. It was a really small, humble place. And, you know, the point about Sai and I was that it's about the encounter. And, you know, most of the time... He, He's not 
you know, work toiling over, you know, as you always see the cliche of artists, you know, toiling over canvases. For him, it was so much more by the, by the encounter. So he's just sitting, reading, thinking, being, you know, the leaves fall outside, it is autumn. And, you know, and I love it for everything it is about the reality of an artist's life and, you know, him and his presence surrounded by these things. So, yes, it's not an obvious depiction of a an artist, but it's, it's a, in a way, quite a realistic one. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Well, I love Julie, of course. <laughs> Julie Meritu. <laughs> you know, she's just a, such a wonderful artist. And um, I've just been, I saw her show at the Whitney. Um, just amazing. And she's obviously a very close friend. And I know she said the same to you the other way around. So, <laughs> and uh, obviously the, the film I've made that's showing here in London for me is 150 Years of Painting, which is uh, this conversation between her and and Lucita Utado, Venezuelan-American artist. And Matt Mulliken is Lucita's son, and I, I, I know him for a very, very long time, and obviously I'm, I'm very close to Julie. I worked out that they both Lucita and Julie had a, but the same birthday, the 28th of November, and that last year, 2020, Lucita would... Was, would be 100 and Julie would be 50, you know, and they were both showing, I mean, coincidentally, and they would, down the line, be both showing on the same floor of LACMA, you know, County Museum in, in Los Angeles. It, it was, you know, Christmas 2019, and I thought, I've just got to do this, and I scrambled a crew together. Julie was coming down with uh, Jessica and the kids to New Year, and... Oh, Lucita was there, Matt was in, you know, I, I just, we just did it. And then for one day we filmed this in, in Lucita's apartment in Santa Monica, them talking in a sort of cyclical way. And these both painters, both immigrants to America, beautiful, both of them women. And it's just, and mothers too. And it just, it's quite moving actually. And, and so... I'm so happy, but I'm so glad I filmed it because, of course, Lucita didn't make it. Probably because of the, you know, being isolated through the pandemic, I think. She just thought, had enough, I'm out of here. <laughs> I mean, it is a really moving film, actually. And there's, a, for instance, a point in it at which Lucita talks about losing a child. And that's a, you know, deep breath. It's, you know, sort of solar plexus hitting moment. So there's yeah, moments of yeah. gentleness, moments where they're just talking about And they art. laugh so much and they're yeah. so, you know... <laughs> Well, talking about painting, I mean, I tried to make it about painting. And, I, you know, in a way, I had the title, 150 Years of Painting. Even before, it was like, I, I've got to make a film, and I'm going to call it that. It was very, for me, that, that was a title that, you know, led the work in a way. Uh, but when she talks about the death of her six-year-old son to polio, I mean, if ever there's an argument for the eradication of world illness, that's it, isn't it? Mm. You know, especially with all the people that are resisting being vaccinated right now, you just really think, please, just go and watch Lucita lose her son. To yes, yeah, I mean, just the, her description of it because it's painful as hell. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting that that one of the things that you do in your films about artists, as you say with Cy Twombly, but also, for instance, with Mario Mertz and others, is that yes, there are films where you show artists in their studios and 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 working. So one with Julie, where yeah. you're, you, you know, but also. You show what it is to be an artist. And, and so much of an artist's life happens outside of the literal process of making work, but still it's all embedded within the work, all of that, isn't it? Mm. 
No, absolutely. And actually, most artists, I mean, Julie is the only one I actually filmed working. And that was very, that was GDGDA. That was um, when she has was working on this epic painting called Mural um, in Berlin. And that was, I never intended that to make a film. I just thought, I just thought, I've got to document this amazing thing that this woman is making. Just monumental. And I remember thinking, this has got to be the biggest thing that any woman has ever made. I mean, she said, no, I'm sure it's not. But it, I mean, it's just what was monumental. I just took my uh, 60 millimeter camera and just documented the activity. And then it becomes two screens. And But that is about labor, but in a very particular way. But most of the works I've made that are about artists. I mean, you know, you could say the same with Merce Cunningham was slightly different because, you know, he was just controlling a whole event, in the Craneway event. In a way, that's something else. But like, you know, Mary is just sitting in a garden, you know, holding a pine cone, which, in a, you know, is the Fibonacci series. It's somehow you know, emblematic of his work. You know, watching time pass. And a lot of, I mean, artists do do a lot of watching time pass. And I mean, in the pandemic, I was very conscious of watching time pass. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 40 cultural institutions through a single download, with new partners being added every month. In 2018, Tessita had a show at Edinburgh's Fruit Market Gallery with her film Event for a Stage, featuring a spellbinding performance by the actor Stephen Delane at its heart. A digital guide to the Fruit Market Gallery is available on Bloomberg Connects, where you can find out about works in the gallery's permanent collection, including Nightwalk for Edinburgh by the Canadian artists Janet Cardiff and George Burrs Miller, an immersive video work for handheld devices guiding individuals through the back streets of the city's old town. The app also enables you to keep up to date with the Fruit Market Gallery's latest exhibitions, with a guide offering audio and video resources to complement your visit or to enjoy on demand from wherever you are. For more content and to explore guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. You can find the app at bloombergconnects.org and it's also available to download from the App Store and Google Play. Do you have works pinned to your studio wall? Do you have others' artworks around you as you work? I mean, I have a, a board and I've got Prospect Cottage, Derek Jarman, on my wall. I've got David Hockney's Portrait of Rufus. I've got Victor Hugo. Uh, I saw an amazing exhibition at the Hammer in LA of Victor Hugo's. I mean, they are amazing, just amazing. And I just went to see visit his house in Place de Vosges. Beautiful ink drawings, but I mean, just really great stuff actually. And that's been that was a revelation to me slightly. I have kind of ephemera and things, but yes, I mean, I do and I don't. <laughs> it's interesting that because you know I suppose one of the things is on, on the one hand what's useful and what things can actually be in, be somehow unhelpful to have around you as as imagery even if they are important to you. Yeah, but I mean I never have big things. These are just postcards or small things. Just but it's more uh, things that I just yeah I mean familiar people and familiar you know processes and such. And you're a collector, of course. You collect four leaf clovers. You collect uh, flea market postcards. Yeah. So do you behave towards those things in a way that a collector behaves to, you know, in the sense, do you, do you keep them very carefully or do you exhibit them around you? Well, recently with Significant Form, which is the work I've just made for Hepworth Wakefield, I had to take my postcards out of their, their box there because I have a series of boxes with different things and, you know, select for ones that related to form in relation to Barbara Hepworth. And I had them all as A4 photocopies above on the wall 
for a very, very long time, actually. And when I was working on the Inferno photogravure, which is on show in Frist Street, I got so frustrated with just... I started to, to pluck things from it and just collage onto the drawing that would become the gravure. So that's the first time I've kind of brought them in. You know, they become integral. My postcards have, you know, they've made a journey out of the box onto the wall and now they're in a, embedded in a photogravure. You know, yes, so the things I have around are not so much other people's work, I think. They are a lot of found images actually and a lot of found stones my stone collection because I had them photographed and I've got a lot of those on the wall at the moment let's talk about museums and galleries which museums and galleries do you visit the most I was thinking about that and I thinking well the one I've been the most to is is LACMA actually and the hammer and I was trying to think about England I really haven't been to Tate for a long time I realize and 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 then Berlin I never leave the Grunewald, which is where my studio is. I mean, it's very, very hard time to um, because everything has been par- paralysed. So I haven't really done very much. But the museum I visit the most, or have done in the last five years, is LACMA. Are there particular works that you need to revisit? You know, things that you 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 have to see when you go there, or do you go and sample different parts? Of well, the I normally go to see the the new exhibitions. You know, and I would, and in relation to other contemporary artists, I mean, other other than Julie is uh, is Pierre Wig. I'm a huge fan of him, I, just because he's such an inventive and interesting artist. And I saw his show. At, I saw it in Paris too, actually, but I also saw it at LACMA. And um, so I go, you know, and and Hammer. They have a lot of very very good exhibitions. But in terms of a work, I visit regularly. You know, the Gemälde Gallery in Berlin. I mean, I love the Cranach. I would go to more than you know when I have the time so that's a very very special place and I hope it stays that way and doesn't get sort of improved upon because <laughs> <laughs> it's almost empty but it's just a, a really wonderful museum talking about improving upon museums you once made a very singular piece about a museum which was the Darmstädter Werkblock which was about Boyce yeah. but sort of a sort of roundabout way of coming at Boyce because it was about the the installation, the, the circumstances of the installation of an important work by Boyce and yeah, more, so more than the work itself. Yeah, block Boyce because they wanted to, imp- you know, you can't see my inverted commas here, but they were improving that installation. And, you know, Boyce worked with the the material on the walls and the carpet, you know, and the whole misunderstanding about what that meant, you know, in terms of acoustics alone, you know. But I, I haven't returned. I can't bear to return. So, I mean, I I made Block Boyce. I filmed everything but Boyce because I wasn't allowed to film Boyce, actually. You know, so that was a what I meant, you know, often with film uh, are the things that make you take another road. So the other film I have showing, which is interesting because I, I I see it as a connective thread to, the, to Panamicus, which is the film I have showing in 60 Frist Street, um, because that was a commission for the 20th anniversary of Getty Center which is this Richard Meyer building, this white, you know, when you go there, you almost feel like you've moved into the next world. <laughs> Somehow you're already up with the gods. <laughs> and it was, you know, to celebration of that building. But I, I I, just thought, no, I couldn't do that. For me, it was much more about that feeling of of the Getty. So I actually filmed on the Getty Centre and the villa property, but without any reference <laughs> if there was a tiny flicker of, of the white building it was cutting room floor but they lent me um, museum objects you know which I had in the landscape so the whole thing is a sort of return to a, 
and Arcadia, you know, very much associated to John Paul Getty's original ideas for the villa especially. And But it reminded me of Block Boys a bit, you know, of Darmstadt of Oak Block, because I was just looking at the film saying, oh, no, there's a bit of white. Oh, I can see Los Angeles and that. Out, out, out. Because I wanted to make it look as, you know, like as close to Arcadia as possible, even, yeah. though, even though it's entirely filmed at the Getty. So, but also in the sense that the museum lent you the works of art, in a way, there's a sort of theatre about it. Yes. You know? So you were you were placing objects in the landscape, rather like a landscape artist of the eighteen. You know, it's 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 a sort of mock classical world, effectively. Yes, it's, of course, it's a mock classical world. <laughs> it's on film, <laughs> um, but. You know, and the Conservators, if you've ever had anything to do with Getty, you know how the Conservators just are fanatical. So they, I made them all get up at dawn, you know, and put their precious objects into the, the wet grass because it wasn't necessarily wet, but it was a, a freaky weather moment. There'd just been rain. So actually there was a lot of green grass, which is also detaches it from Los Angeles in a way. It looks suddenly could be, you know, Dorset. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Einstein on the beach, which I saw in in Berlin with you know Philip Glass and Robert Wilson's Einstein on the beach. I was just extraordinary, actually, and especially now I'm having to make something for a stage, you know, design something for a stage. You know, I was trying to think that that was really a radical move. I remember going to see the whole of uh, Fassbinder's Alexanderplatz, the entire thing, through the night in Berlin, which was just a wonderful thing to do great exhibitions I remember years ago going to Marcel Brodas exhibition at the Jeu de Pomme which was the first time I ever went abroad to see an exhibition I was at the Slade and it was just like and you know not only was it the exhibition itself and the pilgrimage but just traveling to see art as a new thing when you're young that was a very very special thing to do recently I can say something that I would definitely put into the top five things I will ever do is that you know I'm involved in designing this the Dante project which is new composition by Tom Addis and and choreography by Wayne McGregor and that's opening next month Inferno Purgatory Paradise Inferno premiered in Los Angeles in 2019 and that alone was an extraordinary experience but you know then the pandemic came and we had to postpone and then the first orchestral play of Purgatory and Paradise that happened, and I was just luckily in England, and it was in a rehearsal room, the orchestra, first time together since the pandemic. Um, you know, like there were five or six other people apart from the orchestra and, and Tom. It was just so moving, I have to say. I absolutely loved it. I thought, man, this is a really, really important moment. I have to say Thomas Addis's music is just the most stunning thing and I haven't seen Wayne's choreography yet but his Inferno was stunning and Ed Watson who's the who's playing Dante said that it's the best he's ever seen that Wayne has done so I'm very very excited to be involved in that and you know we have our first tech on Sunday and it's all that's a whole another universe I'm going into which is exciting we're going to talk about literature anyway in a minute but I, I wanted to ask about how how in-depth you went into the text when you were thinking about the designs and, and you know did, did you have to immerse yourself in Dante's language to to emerge from it with visual imagery but also of course visual imagery that had to work in a different way to the way that you use some visual imagery well I immersed myself in Inferno I listened to Heathcote Williams and I was even drawing 
chalk fall and listening to Heathcote Williams in preparation for trying to imagine what to do. He was reading it. A wonderful, if ever you want to listen to Divine Comedy, I recommend him reading it because it's just it's wonderful. And I've never designed for a stage, obviously, so I just went in completely the wrong direction and then came back to a place that was more that I knew. And so then I would, did a large drawing that's 40-foot drawing that's it's actually on that's in the Paul Hamlin Hall at the moment. They're showing it. Um, which was, And I forced myself to draw a negative, which is quite hard, actually, because negatives are very flat. And, you know, and of course, uh, Dante's hell is cold so ice so but that is black it's not white so everything is in in the reverse and then purgatory yes but paradise everybody loses interest (laughs) because virtue is sadly dull and amorphous especially you know there's no whereas you know inferno and purgatory purgatorio they are trajectories there's progression there's movement whereas paradise paradiso it's it's not the case it's something else so i did but i I listened i didn't read and and for paradiso you've come up with these really beautiful color images it's not quite clear they have an abstraction to them well what happened is that this premiere was supposed to be in may 2020 and my shows the two shows i'm having right now in frist street in london and maringham gallery in new york where I was supposed to show the works from the Dante project, was supposed to happen long after. <laughs> but then the whole thing got upturned. You know, Paradise, Paradiso, is a is actually a film. I'm turning the Royal Opera House into a cinema. And it's a 35mm anamorphic cinemascope film, entirely abstract in the sense, but with the motif of the circle, so the planetary. But because I wanted to make the Dante project in some sort of you know completion for the shows i made these with coriander press here in in the uk i printed these um screen prints many many colored layered screen prints from stills from the film so that's what you saw so that there was some sense of the three acts in the exhibition because i didn't want to show the film ahead of i couldn't i didn't want to anyway ahead of the premiere Let's talk about literature then. Which writers or poets do you return to the most? You know, I was talking to Matthew Hale, who's my husband, in fact, and we were talking about how I keep fragments with me from, you know, all the way along, you know. And, you know, he's a voracious reader. I'm not a voracious reader, and I always feel some shame about that because it's about time, though, also. And, you know, I've just written this book, Moni Hates Me, which is, a you know, a collection of texts around this edition uh, called Monet Hates Me. And, and that was a lot of protagonist objects and strange things that I found in Getty Collection. And that meant that I was re- spent the last two years reading things about Miss Ackland or stuff like that, you know, just... So I've... Right now, having just finished that, I'm now reading uh, Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which he's rewrote after the film, which I'm just loving, of course, because I'm, I'm Miss LA. I'm also reading... Suppose a Sentence by Brian Dillon, which I thought is, is just a wonderful... He's a great writer. Hmm. Um, historically, I return to, always will return to J.G. Ballard. 
I love the metaphysical poets. I always end up returning to them, John Donne and Andrew Marvell. Yeats and W.S. Graham and Anne Carson and and I read biography. I I just read the, the biography of John Craxton, which is by Ian Collins, which is called A Life of Gifts. I know he he sent it to me in manuscript form, and I during lockdown that's what I was reading, and I was really enjoying that because it was it was the coming of age of an artist, but during the Second World War, and it was during the pandemic, so the restraints were not the same, but. You know, they could hug each other and get drunk. We couldn't do that. <laughs> so it was a different different problem. And um, and he's such a an absolutely quintessentially sort of profoundly charming man, you know, a man with grace. So I really, really enjoyed that. Let's talk about Ballard, because you made the film JG, but one of the things about that film is you linked Ballard to Smithson because there's this intriguing <laughs> element that in Smithson's library was this early short story by Ballard called The Voices of Time. And again, with you, it's this sort of binding together of these intriguing journeys, in a way. Yeah, when I went to Sundance in 1997, the only thing I knew about Utah was spiral jetting. (laughs) So um, I suddenly, and I had a few days after that, I thought, I want to go and try and find the spiral jetting. And it's before it became a, a place of pilgrimage, actually. Now it has a car park and signposts. But then, you know, I had phoned up the Utah Arts Council and they gave me Smithson's directions. And off I went uh, with somebody else who'd been at the lab with me. And we just had this amazing journey. And I turned, I had my DAT and I turned it on and, and obviously made it into a cassette work called Trying to Find the Spiral Jetty. And I never found it. Okay, never found it. I mean, I think I found the wrong jetty. I think it had sunk into the Great Salt Lake. And I think possibly because I had never found it. <laughs> You know, I did not lose interest. And I went, remember going to New York and buying Smithson's writings and then, uh, you know, in conversations with uh, Jeremy Miller, I wrote to Ballard. I remember Jeremy gave me his address and, you know, and he was always very interested and he'd actually written about Smithson, but Ballard, that is, but posthumously. And he was, was like, what was the purpose of the jetty? What was what would have docked at the spiral jetty? Which is just the way he, he spoke. So when I got a commission to do something in America. I wanted to do something about the American landscape. I was immediately drawn to Smithson and by virtue of Smithson also Ballard and this, for me, which was very clear connection between these two men, you know. Voices of Time is a truly extraordinary short story that I never completely can comprehend in a very, very good way. And, you know, it's about a sort of sleeping sickness you know and this strange relationship to time and about this character who just ends up building these sort of sculptures in the desert and, and it was just so like Smithson <laughs> it's just I mean maybe it's not true but I really feel the thread between the two men and the, these works in the desert because the saline landscape and you know Smithson went spiraled down into you know he was very interested into the archaeology and the the sedimentation beneath the Great Salt Lake, whereas Ballard was much more into the galaxy. So they spiralled in different directions, but the connective thread is, is, is all about time, in a prehistoric time and futuristic time. And it's just, um, yeah, no, so I, I made, in fact, it was an Aperture Gate masking film. We can't talk about literature without talking about Sabelt. And, 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 and again, with Jeremy Miller, he, he made a show about Sabelt and you made this wonderful film called Michael Hamburger, which is in the Tate collection. So tell me about that. Uh, you're true. It's correct. I mean, Sabelt is somebody I will always return to. The Rings of Saturn, particularly. 
I remember reading Rings of Saturn and that moment when he goes to visit Michael Hamburger in his Suffolk garden. And I remember talking to Jane Hamlin, who is the proprietor or gallerist for Frith Street Gallery, about, and she said, well, he's actually my uncle and he has apple orchards. And I remember suddenly that moment when Jeremy wanted me to make something for that exhibition. I thought, Michael Hamburger, apples. And so it was all set up and we talked about Sebald a lot and, and many other things when I came to editing, because editing is really the moment when I actually make the work. So I have a huge amount of other stuff, but I find it through editing, which I do on a cutting table alone. I thought, I have to make this film about apples. And people call it the apple film, actually. <laughs> but, you know, Michael, obviously, he left Germany in the 30s and came to live in Britain. So when he talks about apples, it's so analogous to his life, but it's also the life of these, you know, these different strains of apples. So he'd say, this is an apple that was, you know, originally a, a German apple, and then it became, you know, an English apple or whatever. And then very profoundly about these pips that he got from a, an apple that given to him by Ted Hughes that he planted in his Suffolk garden and then made wrote this beautiful poem after he died. It's a, a really beautiful man and it was a beautiful film in a way because it's it's all kind of gone now, you know. And the the thing about that, the garden is encroaching into the house. You know, you feel that the relationship between inside and outside is almost eradicated. Let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to as you work? I realise I'm entirely passive. <laughs> so when I had my knee joint replaced, because I have arthritis, but um, a long time ago, Jane Hamlin gave me uh, an iPod with James Lingwood's music collection on it. And I just listened to that. Absolutely. I, can, I haven't got the technology to even add to it. So I just listened to someone else's music collection, you know, without any anxiety about it. Matthew, he's a huge record collector and we have, well he has, the most staggering amount of records and and now we also have a place in LA, he, we also have a, he has a shadow collection in Los Angeles and you know the one thing about Los Angeles is they had so many records of um, soundtracks, movie soundtracks, really eclectic stuff and he's open to anything. So we listen to the most extraordinary things that he's found and I just listen to it and I'm actually very happy to be a passive. In my studio, there's very few activities I can do where I can listen to something else because I can't when I edit, I can't when I write, only when I draw. And in LA, I have my James Lingwood's uh, music collection because <laughs> I only have this iPod. Uh, but in Berlin, I have a, a CD player and I find I listen to, you know, Janacek. I actually listen to Einstein on the beach a lot, actually, because there's something about it I find quite easy to work to. I've been listening to Dante Project. I love listening to that, actually. And I also like listening to, you know, things I record, like everyday life. I mean, I'm kind of, I love sound effects, you know. Like, uh, you know, that's why I like uh, film soundtracks so much, I think. So not just music, but, you know, bits and pieces of sound and stuff like that. You know, so I record things on my phone and um, I listen to that. We were driving down from Santa Barbara uh, in the summer and we just it was amazing because you had this kind of old timer playing this great music 
and um, and then you went over the hill and it disappeared because you got into LA and you lost him. But we were just, both Matthew and I both put on our phones to record it. And I love just, you know, I can work listening to that, even though it gets interrupted, you get out of focus, everything is, but um, interference. I'm just very happy listening to stuff like that when I work. You talked about Fassbender earlier on, and I wondered about other media that affect the way that you work. Cinema, you mean? Well, exactly. <laughs> yes, and because, of course, you use film, and therefore one might assume, therefore, you are interested in cinematic film and the history of cinematic film. But it's not a given, is it? It's not a given at all. I mean, but I do love cinema. And uh, as I told you, we have to keep it going. In Berlin, that has always been slightly tricky because of everything. You know, unfortunately, it's a nation that dubs. But in LA, we just just went for it. We just watched so much great cinema at the Aero, American Cinematheque and, and other places, just everything and anything. So um, I'm just open to anything, especially if it's shot on, you know, if it's shown as film. So um, historically, of course, I love avant-garde film. I like Alan René. I mean, I, I just, John Goddard, all these. But in LA, anything. <laughs> Anything shown on film, you know, we're just open to it. It's just such, I, I just miss it like hell. I did risk the cinema twice in LA. The last one was this film, Annette. And um, it was absolutely packed And because Sparks did the sound. You know about it, do you? Yes. Yeah, well, Sparks were a Santa Monica group and so they're beloved there. So people were queuing around the block and, you know, obviously it's the first time you're sitting in a packed cinema thinking... Oh, my God, are we going to die for this? <laughs> are we going to die for Sparks? And it opened with this amazing moment, you know, shall we start? May we start? May we start? This euphoric beginning where they all walk round down Santa Monica Boulevard, you know, saying, may we start? May we start? And, uh, and you know, it was this absolute, yes, may we start? Then, the, I mean, for me, sadly, the film just went off piste after that. But the beginning, so um, I recommend watching the beginning and then perhaps leaving. <laughs> <laughs> If you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? I mean, what I, w- I was thinking about this and I was thinking, well, I would love that Paul Nash drawing that I got lent. So this was in the Royal Academy? Yes, it was just, um, it was a loan by a friend. And um, it's not that I covet it. I'm not going <laughs> to. It's just that if there was one tiny object I had to live with alone, I would love just that Paul Nash drawing. I love Paul Nash anyway. There's something atavistic in him that I have a bit myself. It's something to do with the English landscape in a deep way, in in an old way. So that or another Paul Nash I could happily live with. And lastly, what is art for? In the last few days, I heard someone say, some old man say, you know, maybe it's in my dreams, I can't remember, (laughs) him saying, it makes us cope with everything else, something like that. Art, it makes it possible to do everything else. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's a pleasure.
Tacita Dean's The Dante Project, 150 Years of Painting, Pan Amicus, Significant Form and Monet Hates Me are on view at Marion Goodman in New York until the 23rd of October. The Dante Project, 150 Years of Painting, Monet Hates Me and Pan Amicus are on view at Frith Street Galleries, two London venues until the 13th of November. Significant Form is at the Hepworth Wakefield in the UK as part of Barbara Hepworth Art and Life until the 27th of February. And Tacita's solo exhibition Antigone is now open at the Kunstmuseum in Basel, Switzerland until the 9th of January 2022. The Dante Project is at the Royal Opera House in London from the 14th to the 30th of October. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper Podcasts are Judy Mahalska and Amy Dawson. Thanks to Henrietta Bentel, Daniela Hathaway and Kabir Jalla. Huge thanks to Tacita Dean. See you next week. Bye for now. This episode of A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.